0: Thank you very much for joining us. Before we get started on this week's podcast, a really exciting announcement. Peter Hart's book, The Gallipoli Evacuation, is now available to pre-order on our website. That's right, pre-order the book. It'll be out in September, but get your hands on a copy early because anyone who pre-orders the book will also receive an exclusive behind-the-scenes interview with Peter Hart that includes wonderful audio from Gallipoli veterans telling their story in their own words. It's absolutely extraordinary. In many ways, it's even more exciting than the book, but the book's pretty good too. So get your hands on the book, pre-order it now on our website and get that exclusive interview that you can download straight away and then you'll get the book when it comes out in September. So Peter Hart's The Gallipoli Evacuation, now available on the Living History website, which is livinghistorytv.com. That website again, livinghistorytv.com. Get your hands on the book. It's going to be something really special. A Living History production.
1: This is the Living History podcast.
0: Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello and welcome to Living History and a very interesting episode. We're going to be talking, doing a movie review on a new uh, World War II movie that's just come out. It's Greyhound, the movie that's currently streaming on Apple TV Plus and starring and produced by Tom Hanks, who obviously has a great passion for military history and for telling the story of world war ii in particular so i wanted to uh dig into this movie pull it apart a little bit see how it stacks up in terms of historical accuracy and entertainment value and uh joining me to do that is someone who uh is a very good friend of the podcast it's james holland james thank you very much for joining us oh no problem uh good to see you matt i'm gonna kick off straight away mate and ask you the question you've seen greyhound is it a movie worth seeing
1: Oh, yeah, it definitely is. I absolutely loved it. I've got to say, I read the book, um, a little while ago called The Good Shepherd, which is what the, the, uh, movie's, um, based on. Um, and, and actually it's pretty accurate. It's accurate in, in mood and feel to that book. Um, and it just, it, you know, what, what's C.S. Forrester, who is the original author of the book? Um, gets so well as he gets inside the head of his major characters, and I think you really get that. That somehow Tom Hanks has managed to sort of transfer that into the kind of movie. So it's it's a it's a kind of psychological drama, really. It's this guy who's on his first command; he's crossing the Atlantic, and, and you know you have to remember that the American, the US um, uh, Atlantic Fleet was involved in escort work in the Battle of the Atlantic um, in the second half of 1941. So actually, before they'd actually officially joined the Second World War, and uh, following Pearl Harbor. So, you know, that's all kind of true to kind of form. And under him, he's got a small escort force, including a Polish um, destroyer, a a Canadian um, corvette and a British uh, destroyer. And that's his escort force. And you know, the challenges are enormous, because it's that kind of mid Atlantic point where air cover no longer covers you you've got to get across that middle bit of the ground and that's where the u-boats are, are lying in wait and somehow you've got to shepherd this huge convoy of kind of 40 odd ships across that bit with no other other air cover the key thing about air cover is that most a, a, a u-boat a particular a, a type 7 u-boat isn't actually a submarine. It's, it's what's called a submersible. In other words, it spends most of its time on the surface, but can submerge when required. The problem is the moment it submerges, it loses speed. So what you really want to do is try and get them to submerge as quickly as possible. Um, obviously, you want to destroy them too, but you want to get them to submerge. And that's where air cover is really, really important because as soon as a U-boat is on the surface and sees an aircraft flying over, it dives so it can't be seen. And therefore it slows down and therefore that's how you can sort of avoid avoid getting them caught by um uh, catching up with the convoy. But of course in the middle of the Atlantic where that air cover doesn't exist, it is down to the surface vessels. And in 1941, early 1942, you know, techn- technological advances to the Allies in, in hunting submarines has really taken a massive leap forward. But it's still a very imprecise science and it's incredibly difficult to hunt down these U-boats. And that's what you're getting with this U.S. destroyer um, commander and in charge of all the four escort vessels somehow having to kind of second guess. And there's so much to think about because he's got to... He's got to think about the wording that he uses when he is communicating with the other vessels. He's got Polish ship, Canadian and British. He's got to think about, he's trying to try and second guess the U-boat commanders. He's got to handle things like how many depth charges does he use in one go because he doesn't know how long the fighting's going to take place. So he's got to kind of, you know, uh, kind of marshal those a little bit. Uh, and he's also got to kind of think about fuel and a whole host of other factors. So there's just so much responsibility on his shoulders. And both the book and the movie do this brilliantly of of showing just what responsibility is on the shoulders of that captain.
0: I think I've always thought that the Battle of, Atl- of the Atlantic is a very difficult aspect of the Second World War to portray in an entertaining way on the big screen. Because so much i mean i know there were moments of absolute terror on the high seas and some of the most you know engaging stories of the second world war took place during the uh, the, the battle of the atlantic but at the same time there were just weeks and weeks of, of boredom you know convoys could go out and, and and not even not even see a submarine not even see a ship that was probably the norm more than the exception you know that the, there were thousands of ships traveling across that channel and you know the, 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 actually running into a submarine was probably the exception rather than the rule so i think they did a pretty good job in that way of compressing that tension and that drama and the terror that does occur when they run into a submarine into uh you know 90 minutes uh, on the screen
1: yeah i i agree with that And i mean you know it's, it's something like 84 percent of all convoys were unchallenged you know it's a heck of a lot uh, and you know the kind of the highest proportion of sinkings came with stragglers you know those ships that kind of you know the engines playing up or something and they're kind of you know they're they're, it's it's exactly the same as the kind of bomber formations going over you know daylight bomber formations going over northwest europe you know if you're sort of if you if you kind of sort of run into trouble and you suddenly find yourself isolated and alone you're really really up the creek without a paddle but if you're in the convoys, and that's the whole point of having the convoys is this kind of safety in numbers. and it's exactly the same principle for having kind of mass formations of, of heavy bombers as well. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. A lot of it was very mundane, very kind of, uh, um, you know, kind of just clocking through the hours, sort of miserable conditions. I mean, Nicholas Montserrat's famous novel, The Cruel Sea, I mean, it's called The Cruel Sea because it's just so brutal, kind of operating in the Atlantic, particularly, of course, in, in winter, but it can be just as bad in summer as well. You know, it's cold, it's windy, you know, you're, you're wet through all the day long. And I think again, I, I thought they did that really well, that aspect of Greyhound um, really, really well. That's showing, it. you know, just how much rain and, and, and how much water is being flung at the bridge and across the ship, uh, generally speaking. I mean, it did look completely miserable, um, uh, which I think is a sort of key part of, of the Battle of the Atlantic. So, yeah, I thought they did that, that that really, really well. But just imagine, you know, if you're on one of those convoys when the wolf packs do strike you, you know, the odds suddenly are, you know, completely shifting. And as a commander of the escort force, wow, what a lot of responsibility. I mean, you know, because every decision you make might result in the loss of hundreds of men, if you're not careful, you know. So you've just... Wow. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm just totally in awe of those guys. And I think the other reason we don't know much about the Battle of Atlantic is, of course, you know, you can go and visit the beaches of Normandy or you can go to kind of sort of or, or Bougainville or Bougainville or, or wherever you want to go or Guadalcanal, etc. You can sort of wander around those places. Um but you're not exactly going to take a ship to the middle of the Atlantic, kind of look around the sea and just sort of go, wow, this is where it all happened. And then kind of, you know, <laughs> sail on to New York, are you? So, you know, it's kind of not in the public consciousness in quite the same way, I think, as, as sort of land battles are.
0: Having said that, I think it's probably the element of the Second World War that is, in know, in a strange way, it's very sexy. People do love the story of these brave submariners going out for weeks at a time and doing their best to intercept a convoy and sinking these ships and dueling with the surface vessels. There is a very sexy element to it. And I don't think there's really probably another aspect of the second world war that combines so much boredom and tedium and no action occurring with these just, you know, this, this out, this outstandingly fascinating aspect of warfare on the high seas. The two of them are at complete opposite ends of the spectrum, but then come crashing together when the submarines did run into a convoy,
1: yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, the Battle of Atlantic is an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, for me, it's the most important battle of the entire Second World War because of because of the geographical positions of Canada, in the United States, of North America, and Britain, and so much of of so much of defeating Nazi Germany. And, and I think rightly the Allies kind of see defeating Nazi Germany as the number one cause of the Second World War with the battle against Imperial Japan taking second place. So that means that that, that Britain is really your launch pad. So that everything that you want to achieve that victory on land against Nazi Germany and indeed in the air has to come through the Atlantic. Whether it's coming from Australia, whether it's coming from New Zealand, South Africa, the Far East uh um Canada United States everything is flowing to Britain through the Atlantic so if you can't secure your sea lanes you're in big trouble because you know Britain is not is is a, becomes a huge manufacturing um base in the second world war but an awful lot of resources come from elsewhere you know oil for example most of his oil coming from from uh, Venezuela and from the US you know, that's the absolute lifeblood of anyone's war effort. You know, it's one of the reasons why the Nazi Germany fails is because it doesn't have enough oil. So really, you know, if, if you can't secure the Battle of the Atlantic, if you can't win the Battle of the Atlantic, you, you know, the Allies really are in big, big trouble. And, of course, Britain early on in the war goes to enormous efforts to... Um, Push most of its R and D, its research and development effort, into winning the Battle of the Atlantic. So you get, you know, developments in in high frequency direction finding. You get massively new. Um, you you get the cavity magnetron, which is is what reduces the size of radar from huge great masts and great big dishes and stuff to something that you can put on a corvette or a or a destroyer or indeed on a, a very long range aircraft. You know, and again, these these are kind of sort of game changing developments in technology which are actually in place by you know may 1941 so i think you can argue and probably argue convincingly that the battle of the atlantic has got into a position where britain and subsequently the allies are not going to lose the battle of the atlantic by the end of may 1941 but as we know it's not until the end of may nineteen middle of may 1943 two years later that the battle of the atlantic is absolutely won and that is also crucial because, of course, what you've got coming up is enormous operations in Sicily. You've got operations in Italy. You've got operations, of course, of the opening of the Second Front, Normandy, Operation Overlord, and all the rest of it. You can't prepare for those if you don't know what shipping's coming across. And actually, it's not just about making sure that the vast majority of your shipping is safely crossing the Atlantic. It's also making sure that you can plan. And you know, shipping cycles take months. Of planning and, and therefore very much months ahead of each other. So you think of you've got this incredible network of, of ships coming from Australia, from South Africa, from, you know, the Indian subcontinent. They all take different times to reach Britain or from Britain to get to those places. All that has to be thought through so that they can all come together at the right time when you need the mass of that material for your land operations. So, the Battle of the Atlantic is this incredibly complex beast. And what's really interesting is, is of course, you as an individual merchant seaman or you as a commander of a destroyer in the Battle of the Atlantic, you're probably not really seeing that big picture. What you're just seeing is, I hope I get across the Atlantic in one piece, and I don't end up being kind of fish bait, you know. Uh, And and that would sort of play on your mind a huge amount. But behind this is this kind of huge machine, this huge technological advancement, which the Allies are pushing forward to ensure that they do win the battle of the Atlantic. Conversely, the U-boat arm begins the Second World War with just, you know, 3,000 personnel. And it's just not big enough. So, you know, even even during the first happy time, the happy time is... um, when the uh, most of the convoys are going through unescorted because most of the Royal Navy is on anti-invasion watch in South East England in 1940. This is what the U-boat crews called the happy time. But there's never more than 14 U-boats operating at one time in the entire battle of, you know, in the entire Atlantic. The Atlantic's a big old place. You know, even by January 1941, there's no more than six U-boats operating in the Atlantic in, in that month. You know, at a really crucial period of the Second World War. Um, and and the problems that the, the the U-boat arm has is you've got these guys, these incredibly experienced U-boat commanders at the start of the war because they've been in the force for a number of years. They, their seamanship is second to none. But, of course, there's a kind of gradual attrition. And in between March and May 1941, three of the biggest aces, U-boat aces, that they have, Preen, um, Shepka, and Kretschmer, are all lost. You know, um, Kretschmer's taken prisoner. Preen and get, um get killed. You know, and you can't replace that. So by the time you get to kind of 19, late 1942, 19, early 1943, where the U-boat force is, you know, able to kind of sort of operate kind of a 100 plus U-boats at any, at any one time, it's too late because the experience levels are just going lower and lower and lower. And I'm, I'm not quite sure when Greyhound is quite set. I think it's kind of early 1942, um, when the very, very few American vessels operating across the Atlantic at that time, because of course it's post Pearl Harbor so they're now over in you know in the in the Pacific. You know, that's the that's the main effort for the US Navy at that point. Um but by that stage you're at that interesting kind of tipping point where the efficiency of the U boat arm is sort of is, is going against them in terms of experience. And the and, and the Mark Seven, although there's Mark Nines as well, the Mark Seven is the kind of standard U boat and it's just not really improving. You know, it's kind of flatlining in terms of technology, whereas allied technology is increasing massively during that period.
0: Well, I suppose there's only so much they can do with a submarine, isn't there? I mean, the, the, the limitations of how it operates and what it can do compared to a surface fleet. I mean, the, 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 there's only so much that the uh, the U-boat fleet can be doing to, uh, to, to keep up with the allied technological advancements, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, they've got the Type 21 in, in the kind of, in the offing and the technology for the Type 21 is, um, is there actually before the, the Second World War starts. So, but it's just not kind of pushed forward by the Nazis because, you know. U-boats aren't as sexy as battleships. You know, where's the fun in cracking a champagne bottle against a submarine compared to a massive great battleship like, I don't know, like the Tirpitz or something? You know, and, and Hitler likes things that are big. Um, You know, so the Z plan, which is a pre-war naval ex- expansion plan, is definitely kind of a massive own goal because they're never, ever going to compete in terms of a surface navy with... France, frankly, uh, but certainly not Britain, which has the largest navy in the world at the start of the Second World War, and obviously subsequently United States and and even Canada for that matter. Um, So, you know, what they should have done in the 1930s is to build up a massive U-boat fleet, because it was U-boats in 1917, which nearly kind of, you know, did for Britain's war effort um, in the First World War. So, you know, it it seems to me insane that they don't kind of concentrate that in the 1930s. But, you know, thank God they don't. But the Type 21 is fascinating because, you know, that is sets the bar for the post-war true submarine. And it can operate faster under the surface than it can on the surface. And it is a total, total game changer um and you know fortunately only i think it's something like two ever get operational and that's not till april late april 1945 you know so it's just it's just too little too late the frustrating thing from the german point of view is that they have that technology at the start of the war but they don't give it enough focus and push to, to get these into action quickly. So yeah, you are stuck with these type sevens because there are, and type nines because there's nothing, there's no alternative. And you can never get away from that problem that they're much slower under the surface than they are on the surface. And. The other thing that they never quite nailed is their torpedoes. You know, a lot of them are duds and they just can't quite get the trigger mechanism quite right. You know, which again is very much to the advantage of the Allies. But what you're seeing in Greyhound and brilliantly depicted is lots of U-boats operating on the surface. And although in the film they just seem just a teeny bit too close for my liking, you know, I'm prepared to forgive that because what it does show is that most of the U-boats are not under the water. They're actually on the surface, which is absolutely true to form.
0: Well, I know that the movie is obviously intended to be entertainment, and as I was watching it, I actually wished it went on for a little bit longer. It was relatively short for a film, and they sort of yep. dove straight into the action. Tell me, from your position as a historian, it's probably difficult to take your historian hat off sometimes. But um, what what do you think in this movie that they did really well? What parts of the Battle of the Atlantic did they depict accurately? What part of the story did they tell well? I mean, what they
1: they just the sort of intensity of the operations when you're in the middle of a convoy, uh, when you're escorting a convoy, and you're under wolf pack. Um, attack I thought they got that intensity really well the decision making process that that Tom Hanks's commander as commander Krauss has to do I thought was really really well done all the language was correct you know the mood the kind of feeling the kind of the the, the kind of interplay between the various officers and and, uh, ratings on the ship that was all that all just felt true to me Um, I thought that was really, really good. And also just the kind of, you know, the mad hammering of guns and stuff. You know, it would have been like that. You know, I I think that was that was really well, really, really well done. So I thought most of it was great, actually. And I'm also I'm a big fan of using CGI. I, I think it's much better to use CGI rather than to use reality and get it wrong. You know, that's my big beef with Dunkirk movie, for example. You know, I know Christopher Nolan has this thing that he doesn't really like using CGI, you know, but it was a poorer film as a result of that because you never got the sense of... um Vastness of Dunkirk. You never got the kind of mass of ships that were out at sea. You never got, you know, you never got the ships loading up from the from the mole because you just didn't see them because he didn't have any ships that he could use that were real. You know, you had Spitfires flying in Vix of three when you know they're not. They're going to be operating in twelves, um, um, and certainly not at kind of sort of four thousand feet, you know, or two thousand feet, or even five hundred feet. You know, they're going to be way up. So. You know, I thought all that was a real problem. Whereas the great thing about about Greyhound is you have no alternative but to use CGI. And CGI is so good now that I don't really see there's any issue with it. You know, I, I you know, and, and also it's interesting, you know, how they do CGI is what they would do is they would photograph something that is real like a zillion times. And then you build a digital picture. So in a way, it's sort of real. You know, if you wanted to depict a Catalina flying over, for example, you would take that Catalina, you would photograph it every which way possible, put it together on a computer. So what you're seeing is our photograph is footage of a real Catalina, but just reconfigured on a in a digital format. So, <coughs> you know, again, I thought all that was really, really good.
0: As a technical achievement, the thing I um the thing I really liked from a technical perspective was that they married up. So they shot a lot of it on a on a World War II destroyer as a, a static. A museum ship. They shot a lot of it, the internals there. Then obviously they had these huge elements of CGI and what a challenge to to recreate the Battle of the Atlantic, you know, with ships that weren't there and gunfire and the whole thing. Um, But I thought they married it up really, really well. I think sometimes these movies either end up like that Dreadful Pearl Harbor movie where it's all CGI and you feel like you're just watching a computer game. Or perhaps, as you say at the other end of the spectrum, like Dunkirk, where they're committed to the art of having actors and real ships and real planes in the picture, and therefore it feels a little bit lacking. I thought this was a great example of where they married up both of those elements very, very well. The live action, the, the real stuff that they'd filmed on an actual ship with the CGI. I thought they did a brilliant job of marrying it up. I was very impressed with that.
1: Yeah, me too. I thought it was absolutely terrific. And, 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 you know, the, the problem with Pearl Harbor, well, there's so many problems with Pearl Harbor, but one of the problems with Pearl Harbor is, you know, all the planes when they're attacking that, you know, it's, it's like watching Star Wars rather than watching a Second World War film. I mean, you know, planes just don't operate with that agility, that maneuverability and that speed. You know, so when you're doing your CGA, you've got to, you've got to create it so that it looks realistic you know, the, the proportions are right. The proportions of size to speed across the screen and all the rest of it. That's the difficult thing to do. I mean, there was a, I, I, I saw a bit of criticism on Twitter about the kind of, you know, you know did a destroyer really kind of lurch around the sea with such speed and and auto? And, and the answer is yes, it absolutely did. I mean, you know, destroyers could do kind of, you know, 42 knots. I mean, that's seriously quick. Uh, and, you know, when you really, really had to. And if you're doing a tight turn, of course you're going to, you're going to be sort of leaning over and the sea's going to be switching over your cut over, over kind of four decks and all the rest of it. I mean, that's exactly what it was like. I mean, if you read any accounts of people that were operating in the Atlantic, as I was saying earlier on, on Matt, you know, these guys are soaked to the skin literally 24-7 the whole time they're on that convoy. I mean, you just never get a chance to dry out. I also thought what was really good is, and, and, and again, it's, I really urge people to read the book actually as well. It's, it's fantastic. And just because you've seen the movie wouldn't detract from the novel at all. But, but it's that sense of just being on your feet the whole time, you know, just having to concentrate whole time and, and not having enough rest. And I think that's, that's something that you, you experience, um, in whatever kind of walk of life you are, you're undertaking in the Second World War, whether you be a a soldier on New Guinea, whether you be, you know, a bomber pilot, whether it's, it's that kind of, that sleep deprivation that you get at certain times. And yet you've still got a kind of, Find the way through, and I don't know about you, Matt, but I mean, I know what I'm like when I haven't got enough kip. You know, I I, I find it hard to focus. You know, your eyes start to sting, don't you? You just feel really kind of you know, your shoulders drop and all the rest of it. And, and, and I thought what they did so well, what Tom Hanks does so well in this movie, is is portray, give give a flavour of what it's like being an escort commander when you're under attack by 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 U-boats.
0: I liked that element of it, James. It's a great point that. It really is a story about the people involved. And we know that Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg and the work that they have done before, I know Spielberg wasn't involved in this picture, but the, the, we know that these guys are committed to telling very intense personal stories, Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, the Pacific. I mean, they've got the the Mighty Eighth is coming out eventually, which I'm looking forward to about the uh, the uh, the Air Force. Um, but I thought this, this was really a tale of people on these ships. It wasn't so much a tale of the ships. It was a tale of how did the people on the ships go? Uh, and I thought they did that very well uh, as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought a sort of, you know, a 90-minute period of human drama, it was, it was pretty... Uh, it pretty kind of hit all the marks. I mean, I, I would give that film a really high rating. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I You know, every time a new Second World War film comes out, you kind of, you know, as a historian, you, you go and watch it with a certain sense of trepidation. I mean, there's some new film that came out about D-Day, and, it, it, you know, it's just an absolute horror story of awfulness. Uh, and, and you know, just every cliche out of the book. And I thought, this is just... It's just such a joy when you watch something and you go, you know what, this is actually really good. They've got the historical detail right. This has got the flavour of the novel absolutely right. The performances are second to none. You know, it's ticking all the right boxes and I'm being hugely entertained. You know, what's not to like?
0: Those depictions of friendly fire that you mentioned earlier when the uh, when all the ships are just blasting away at U-boats as they come into the into the group and there's, yeah, there's yeah. shells and bullets flying in every direction. That was some of the most harrowing scenes of, uh, of the whole film. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was great. I also liked the fact that, that, you know, you had the U-boats kind of intercepting on the radio and kind of giving all that kind of creepy chat and stuff. And that, that really did happen. Um it, You know, they did do that from time to time. And, it, you know, that sort of psychological warfare, I thought that was really good. And that sense that the U-boats are... You know, and this is again. You know, it's told from the whole novel, and indeed, the film is told from the point of view of Tom Hanks's character. So, so that's who you're you're seeing the whole thing through his eyes. So that's why you don't see U-boat crews. You know, you just you hear the voices occasionally because you know of the U-boat crews because that's what what he's hearing. But they are just this sinister menace with their kind of sort of wolf paintings on the on the conning tower and all the rest of it. And when they do emerge, you would have felt like you're being stalked i mean they're called wolf packs for a reason you know they hunt together they're they're hunters you know you are hunted Uh, and that psychological effect i thought came across really really well and it doesn't matter how terrifying it is if you are actually a u-boat crew and how much as a member of the u-boat crew you would feel like the, the the ball is on the other foot from the perspective of a destroyer escort commander that's what you're looking at. And I thought they portrayed that absolutely stupendously well.
0: It's a really great point. I think that one of the failings of war movies often is, particularly from the Allied perspective, is the enemy is always portrayed just this sort of shadowy figure. You see, you, ne- you never see the enemy in any you know, three-dimensional capacity. They're always just this, this stock standard feature of the movie that is required to help the, help the plot progress along which was what happened in Greyhound, but I thought it worked to very good effect here because I had they shown the, the scared U-boat crews who didn't want to die, it would have broken that illusion that you had from the perspective of the surface ships that you were being hunted by ghosts. You know, you couldn't see they're under the water, they attacked at night and then they disappeared and you just couldn't see them again. And this whole, this terrifying feeling that must have been with the, the crews of these ships every day that they were being hunted by an unseen enemy who was going to appear at a moment's notice. You know, the torpedo slamming into the ship was the first thing they were going to know that there was a U-boat around. So I thought in this instance they did a really great job of only depicting the enemy as these shadowy, aggressive, arrogant you know, members of the story. It was really well done.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think you've got, to, you've got to judge something on what it's setting out to do. You know, It's not setting out to tell the story from two perspectives. It's telling it purely from the perspective of the destroyer escort commander, you know, the Tom Hanks carried out. And from that point of view, absolutely, it completely nails it yeah no, I thought it was a terrific movie. I really really enjoyed it.
0: What did they get wrong? What bits would you like to have seen them done differently
1: i I don't know that i would have, have changed anything really I mean you know in terms of kind of um realism uh, the the u-boats were just getting a little bit too close sometimes
0: um yeah their their commanders their commanders seemed to have a uh, a bit of a lack of um you know respect for the safety of their own u-boats it seemed they were determined to get in there and uh you know uh, they, they were they were they were uncautious.
1: Yeah. Although having said that, I remember talking to the number one, who's the second in command of a, of a British submarine, um, operating in the Mediterranean. Um, and in May 1941, they got within the destroyer screen of a, of a, of a, of a uh, Italian troop ship and sunk it because their ASDIC was out. So the only way they were going to get it was getting really, really close. So they did get in there and they got, they got depth charged 36 times, um, and survived. And the commander got a VC for that and, and, my friend got a, a, a DSC, so you know they did do that. You know it's not entirely unrealistic, um, but no, I don't really have any kind of grumbles of any of it. Really, I thought, thought it was all all really really good, and it's just fascinating hearing the language and the kind of you know the commands they they're using and and the kind of terminology and and the uh, um, the contact with the other boats, the kind of telephone network that they have to kind of link them to the other the other escort boats. All of that was was absolutely as it was. So you know, it, I I would give it very very high rating.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I didn't have high expectations for it when I saw the trailer because it was one of those movies where the preview was, you know, a bit over the top and a bit patriotic, and you know, America saves the day again. I thought, what's this going to be like? And then I saw it, and I thought it was absolutely great—just uh, a really great piece of entertainment. James, um, thank you so much. It's great to get your opinion on these things. It's always, as I said, it's difficult sometimes for us to take the historian hat off and just uh, sit back and enjoy <laughs> a good piece of entertainment. But I think Greyhound certainly uh, qualifies as a, as a great piece of entertainment, which it set out to do. So, thank you very much for your thoughts on it.
1: No, pleasure. Always good to see
0: you. So Greyhound is currently streaming on Apple TV+. Plus. So both James and I would recommend uh, you check it out. James, thanks for your time. All
1: right. Cheers, Matt. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content.
1: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too.